Hello, this is Julian Charles of themindrenewed.com, podcasting to you from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. Today is the 16th of November 2012, and I'm delighted to be speaking to Dr. Niels Harrit, Associate Professor Emeritus in Chemistry at the University of Copenhagen. Dr. Harrit received his PhD from that same university in 1975 and served there as Associate Professor from 1976 until his retirement two years ago. Though well known as a scientist within academic circles, with over 60 co-authored peer-reviewed articles published in some of the most prestigious scientific journals, Dr. Harrit has become more widely known in recent years because of a particular paper he authored in 2009, which presents physical evidence that calls into question the official account of the destruction of the three World Trade Center high-rise buildings on the 11th of September 2001. Published in the Open Chemical Physics Journal, this paper, entitled Active Thermitic Material Discovered in Dust from the 9-11 World Trade Center Catastrophe, is going to be the subject of our conversation, and Dr. Harrit joins me now to discuss this paper and its implications. So, Dr. Harrit, thank you very much for speaking with me on The Mind Renewed. Well, th- hello, Julian, and thank you for taking me on. I'd like to start by asking you to say a little bit more about yourself. I know I've given a little bit of information, but I think it might be good if you could just say perhaps a bit more about how you came to be Associate Professor, now Emeritus, and a little bit more about your area of specialism. Oh, how I... How I actually got into science? Yes, uh, you know that goes back to my my childhood. Actually, this is just a matter of curiosity. I mean, if you're curious and if you want to ask questions to nature, this is uh, more. It was more or less a natural way to to follow. And uh, maybe my problem was that I didn't get much resistance. I actually found it easy and I still do. So if there's any uh, one of our listeners who think that science is complicated and hard to understand, maybe they didn't have the right teachers or maybe they had some teachers who want to make things more complicated than they have to be. Science is easy. All you have to do is put your life into it if you want a career. And uh, that's about all it takes. It's about it's a matter of motivation, you would say. Yeah, work. It's not it's not difficult if you if you have the right teachers and 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 just sit down and take a look at it. There there are things that I think that the emotional side of life is much more difficult uh, because in science you know you're accumulating both knowledge and uh, a com and. Uh, publications and work you know your 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 pile is always getting bigger but but if you're say if you're the performing arts if you're an actor or a musician or a dancer you cannot rely on what you did yesterday actually this is the state of existence but in science you can fall back on what you did yesterday you cannot do that as an artist so i think that it's much more easier to be a scientist than to be an artist. I think that's the first time I've heard anybody say that, I think. (laughs) Well, I have some experience, actually, because I'm a musician as well. Aha, right. Yeah, so I know. And when uh, we finished uh, this interview, I have to go down and practice for a concert I'm doing, actually rehearsing for tomorrow. Oh, wonderful. What is it you're playing? 
well, my main instrument is saxophone, but I also play the flute and the piano and various keyboards and composing and stuff and things like that. Oh, wow. Now, I've introduced you as a professor of chemistry. What, what is your yeah. more specific area within that? Of chemistry, this is the uh, interaction of light with matter. Chemical reactions and also physical implications of reactions between light and matter, or in more general, electromagnetic radiation and matter. It is that my core expertise, you would say, is photochemical reactions. And uh, the photosynthesis is one very known example of a photochemical reaction in which energy of the sunlight is converted into trees and green leaves and actually produces oxygen as a convenient byproduct. Mm -hmm. um, right, so I'd like to, to move on to the, the question of 9-11, of course. And um, most people who question the events of that day say that it was watching a video of Building 7 fall that first triggered their skepticism towards the official story. And I have to say that was true of me as well. Uh, what was it that first caused you to question 9-11? The same thing, actually. My wife, who is my my fellow warrior, actually in the in in, in pursuit of 9/11 truth, we are we are we are a team. Probably due to her lifelong involvement as a peace activist. In 2006, she received a couple of PhD anonymously by some people who we have later come to know. We know who's actually sent them to us. But we didn't know at the time. They were lying around for a couple of months until we finally slipped them into the DVD machine. And what I saw there was a presentation by Professor Stephen E. Jones from the Brigham Young University. Actually, I think it was the first one he did. And in that, he showed the collapse of Building 7. The, the, the third of, of the World Trade Center skyscrapers to collapse on, on 9-11. Yes. And that was, I would not say an eye-opener, because I it was a jaw-hanger, I would say, because mm. what was going on there? And immediately we had two problems. One was that we haven't seen it before. So there was somebody who actively wanted us not to know this the most spectacular actually building collapse in, in modern history of architecture. And second, as a natural scientist, I couldn't understand what was going on. There was no obvious reason for this building to collapse. So um, it gave a lot of afterthought. And after a couple of weeks, we realized that this was the most important event actually in our lifetime. It took me a couple of weeks to realize the consequences and the perspective. And I think this is a normal, what you would say, delay time or for people to actually appreciate the enormousness of this event and how it has influenced the whole global society. So from that on, actually, we haven't had really had a day off. It has accelerated eventually up to the point of the publication of the paper you referred to in your in introduction. Yes, yes. Could you talk us through more detail about what you found and, and how you went about it. Stephen E. Jones, who I just mentioned, 2006, he, uh, he was the one 
and he should give, be given all the credit for having initiated this research. Uh, he started to look into the dust of 9-11. Up until that time, there had been already two reports on, uh, on the pulverization of the skyscrapers. One from a private company called the RJ Lee Group in 2003 and four. it was published. And another publication from the United States Geological Survey, which came out in 2005. And just from reading these reports and actually requesting some supplementary material from a Freedom of Information Act request, there were some data which they wouldn't release, but they had to, the, the United States, uh, the Ge Geological Institute. So, um, but when he got them, he wrote a paper because in the dust there are many, many findings, in each of them alone, implying that there were very high temperatures occurring during the collapses of the World Trade Center skyscrapers. I could, of course, go into details of that, but, but let me just mention a finding of some tiny iron spheres. These are completely round iron particles. In, in a huge quantity, actually, 5.87%. 5, this is enormous compared to ordinary building dust. And the occurrence of these iron particles in themselves alone, and this is not our finding, this was known already at that time, imply that thermite was used during the demolition of the World Trade Center skyscrapers. And we could stop here actually because this is this is enough. But um, when I and when I'm talking about thermite, I have to explain a little bit what this means. The word goes more than 100 years back actually to a German chemist called Hans Goldschmidt, who in 1893 discovered that a mixture of pulverized aluminum, aluminum powder, and iron oxide, which you may call rust, pulverized rust. The mixture of these two solid materials, uh, like gunpowder, if you can make them react, the reaction is very violent in the sense that enormous heat is produced and the product is elemental iron. So, so what it's doing, the aluminum is reducing the rust to elemental iron, but the iron comes out at a temperature of 2,500 degrees centigrade, which is roughly 100 degrees higher than the melting point of iron and steel. So the thermite reaction is very useful. It can be used for welding and was patented already in 1898 for that purpose. But because the iron produced in the process has this enormous temperature, it can also be used for the destruction of other iron items or steel items. And now I'm talking about armor. So the thermite reaction has been used for military purposes for many, many years after the First World War I in torpedoes and grenades. But the classical old time kind of thermite is not an explosive. It is an incendiary. It destroys other things by means of heat, while an explosive, as you may know, destroys things by means of pressure. 
uh, an explosive mechanically blows things apart, but an incendiary destroys things by means of heat. So a torpedo, which has a thermite charge, is actually melting its way through the warship. So and this must be kept in mind because there's been a lot of hype around our findings of this thermitic material. But fact is, we do not know where it fits into hypothetical blast scenarios of World Trade Center. Many people think that this is explosive, and all we can say, maybe we do. Actually, we do not know. The, in my opinion, the 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 collapse scenarios of World Trade Center are complicated. Are very complicated. There's a lot of energy in the thermite reaction, and in recent years, and this means from the early 90s, uh, this has been subject the military research to use the um, the energy of the thermite reaction and into an explosive action that is that you add chemicals to the reaction forming this pressure wave which makes the material an explosive and at the same time uh, maybe you recall we saw the advance of nanotechnology which is a field of technology in between molecular sciences like chemistry and what we call bulk materials, which is the realm of physics. Nanotechnology is a border discipline between our physical world and the world of chemistry, which is molecules. It just makes all the particles much smaller. So what you have, you have particles almost the size of molecules. They're bigger than molecules, but they are so small that in this case, when we are in the thermite reaction, it's a solid state reaction. That is, there's two powders reacting with each other. But if you make the particles very, very small, the reaction is much faster and much more violent. So if we talk about nanothermite, where you where the particles are approaching molecular dimensions. The reaction is roughly 100 times faster than the classical thermite reaction. And for that reason, so we know that the research has been going on. We know that the principles of the thermite reactions forms the basis of making explosives and rocket fuel as well, propellants. So now we have three categories of what we call energetic materials. We have incendiaries, explosives, and rocket fuel. As an example, the second, what you call, step of the um, of the space shuttle rocket. This was actually a nano a nano rocket fuel. So what I'm saying here is that we have an, a chemical reaction with a lot of energy, and that can be used either as an incendiary or as rocket fuel, or as an explosive. And we do not know where our findings come in. But uh, your paper says that uh, you you have found material that you reckon to be nanothermite. Yeah, it reacts. That's That's the most pertinent finding of ours. It is that some of the chips we found are still reactive. Because when you apply an explosive or an incendiary, there's always something left. 
So this, again, we must credit Professor Stephen Jones. He started to look for unreacted material. Uh, maybe there's something left. That was his thought. We knew thermite has been used for other reasons, which I maybe get a chance to mention. Uh, and so he started simply to see if if some of, if there should be something left, and found these red red chips. And most proteins, when you heat them up, they react and form elementary iron. And that is the single, actually, observation which makes it thermitic material. And this is consistent with the microspheres of iron which was found in the dust. Strangely enough, yes, <laughs> but we have strict, scientifically, strictly speaking, we must say that this is just a strange coincidence, mm-hmm. but it's, it's consistent. Yes. The model is consistent and consistency is, is a, an important requirement for any scientific statement. Yes. Yes. So the nanothermite would be sufficient to explain that phenomenon, though not necessarily the explanation. Well, there's another observation which was actually made by Jonathan Barnett and, and a colleague from Worcester Institute of Technology already in late 2001, because at, due to some circumstances I'm not quite aware of, they actually got access to some of the steel beams from Ground Zero, and they found a phenomenon which is generally known as sulfidation of steel. That is, they found uh, the, these steel beams had been had been uh, corroded and reacted in a strange way. They looked like Swiss cheese. They were razor thin and with big holes in it. And when they took a closer look at the uh, at the structure of the steel, they found, I should say, iron sulfide, sulfidation of steel. And uh, this points to a, another variety of thermite, which is called thermate. Now things get a little complicated, because if you want to cut steel with thermite, one of the early discoveries is that this goes much easier if you add sulfur. Not because the reaction is more violent, but because the steel melts easier. I could go, I could say it's because it forms a eutectic mixture with the steel, but that very quickly becomes very complicated. Point is that if you add sulfur to the thermite, the thermite cuts through steel like a hot knife cut through butter. Now, our nanothermite cannot account for this finding. So if you want to cut the steel columns of World Trade Center prior to the demolition itself, because this is what happened, you could see molten iron pouring out of the South Tower minutes before it collapsed, meaning that what they did was they they weakened the whole structure and, and started cutting the steel beams before the final stages of collapse. And this, in my opinion, most probably was done with their mate. That is not involving the red gray chips. So there, in my opinion, there are at least two kinds of thermitic material being used and eventually also the explosives. But we do not know the nature of the explosives which were used in the final stages. I mean, if you watch, if you look at the two twin towers, 
you have probably seen the Twin Towers as well as the collapse of Building 7. Yes. And you would agree that these are two completely different scenarios. Mm-hmm. Building 7 is what you say structurally a classical demolition. It's taken from the bottom up and it goes into free fall. But the Twin Towers were blown up from the top down. If you care to look with an open mind, without prejudice, you can simply see the towers being blown up. And at the same time, you can, David Chandler, the American high school teacher, has done a lot of brilliant video work on the collapses of the Twin Towers. Because you can, you can, you see the fragments of the building being thrown out, ejected out while the building is exploding, ejected out 100, 200 meters. And these are some of the fragments are 10, 15 tons. These are enormous steel beams and girders being thrown out. Small fragments as well. Some of them actually accelerating towards the ground faster than free fall. Some of them changing direct, direction in mid-air, making 90 degrees turns. Some of them are exploding in mid-air, if you take a closer look. This could very well be our nanothermite. And uh, you may speculate, why do they have to do this? And why do they have to throw actually most of the weight of the towers outside the footprint? Because this is what happened. They could have taken it down into its own footprint, but they did not. They had to make these exploding mushroom-like structures and pyroclastic clouds. It's very, very hot in there. Uh, Now we are really going into speculations why they have to do this. But this is what you see. And so uh, in my scenario, there are at least two types, types, different types of thermites being involved and explosives the nature of which we do not know. Could I turn to your interview that you had with Michael Rudin of the BBC? Um, It was suggested that uh, maybe primer paint was used in the World Trade Center buildings and that maybe that might account for the red-gray chips. Did your research exclude that possibility? Well, the funny thing about Michael Rudin's interview is he actually accepts our findings. Does he? Oh, yeah, he does. Uh, uh, yeah, that that the chips is reacting to form elemental iron. So that is, this is, this is a thermite reaction. So the BBC was actually endorsing thermitic paint. I can live with that. <laughs> we call it, we call it painted on thermite. Mr. Rutin did not realize this when he asked me the question, and I was actually at that time too exhausted to catch actually what was happening. But was what he did was the BBC was actually endorsing thermitic paint at that time because he said that the same kind of paint had been applied to the Manhattan Bridge. Fine. I mean, I could easily go along with that. And I explained it to, to him uh, in the post-production that he was actually what was actually what what he did so maybe that was because this this part of it did not make it very well into the final production but this is what bbc did actually bbc was endorsing thermitic paint 
And actually, the researchers he was quoting haven't said a word about this since. And everything which is not published doesn't count. Yes, he he, met, he mentioned a couple of professors from uh, Carnegie Mellon University. Yeah, um, how dare he? Because I had no idea who these people were, many. And, and so on camera, just bringing secondhand, thirdhand rumors along about I couldn't relate to that, obviously. But it turned out later on that this was actually what happened there. The, the BBC was endorsing the meeting. I must admit, I did think that was a very strange part of the interview because he mentioned that these professors had said the paint was specialised cured paint. And then he seemed to suggest that this had the same kind of properties as the thermitic material that you had discovered. And I did think to myself, why on earth would you use a paint with those kind of properties in, in, in a building like, buildings like the World Trade Center? Yeah, imagine that the, if, if the Manhattan Bridge really was painted with that. I mean, if, 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 if a car caught fire on the Manhattan Bridge, that would be a very spectacular piece of fireworks. But um, do you know anything about these paints which he's talking about? Oh, yeah, I had I had, of course, I had great problems actually localizing the uh, the, the the scientists he was talking about. And uh, so I so, so that he presented stuff like that on camera was was a dirty trick from his part. But the point is that they they are not uh, it's true that you you use aluminum but not they don't have the properties i i i sincerely do hope <laughs> that the paint is talking about does not react i have not followed up on this i mean it really doesn't matter because what we are saying is we have found thermitic paint the thermitic material in the world trade center dust it shouldn't be there and that's it there but there are other kinds of primer paint which people has suggested should be identical to our findings and but they do not fit the chemical composition one of them uh, contains now i have to be a little technical 30 percent strontium chromate which we do not find but it, it it leaves our finding as you may realize now as purely an academic footnote because because uh, the uh, evidence for the demolition of the World Trade Center towers is so overwhelming. It's it's a mountain of evidence. Just from one fact is that that no steel frame structure has ever collapsed due to fire. That alone is enough. Um, It's sometimes suggested that your article is published in the Open Chemical Physics Journal because it wouldn't have made it through the more rigorous peer review process of a more prestigious publication. Um, is there anything to that claim at all? No. And the, and the problem here is not the peer review process. The problem is that there are several problems. One thing is that the established publishing companies, for reasons that... <laughs> may have become obvious, would never touch a thing like this. I mean, this is the same thing as BBC or the whole mainstream. They, they are part of the mainstream media picture. Another thing is, actually, the open journals was at that time an innovation, and they're still, it's in the name, that open journals should have open access by everyone. 
What has happened in the scientific community is that the um, traditional publishing companies have cranked up the prices of subscription on the regular journals to such an extent that their outside reach of ordinary companies and not to talk about single individuals. It's only the big libraries and the big institutions who can afford subscribe to the prestigious journals. That's one thing. So, so this has nothing to do with our paper. You must remember it's always the scientists who pay for the publication, either as subscribers or, in this case, uh, with page charge. And some journals, you, you do both. That is, you pay for the publication and you pay for the subscription. This is only a matter of politics, how the money comes into the system for the publication. In the open journals, the system is that you pay for the publication. In, in, but the journals, which is completely controlled by very few publishing companies, you pay by subscription. The, uh, the review process is the same. It has nothing to do with that. Number one advantage of the journal that we published in is that it is public. It can be accessed publicly. So you can actually, you can go and read it. If this was one of the traditional journals, you would have to go either go to a library or you have to be affiliated a university in order to read it. That's one thing. Another thing is it's very long. If this journal should have a paper version, we would never be allowed to publish such a long paper with 33 color pictures. The technical production of this paper is the most complicated I've ever been involved in. Point three, we keep the copyrights of the pictures. This you wouldn't do if it was one of the, uh, the traditional publishing companies. Then they would take the copyrights of, of the pictures and I would have to ask them every time I gave a presentation. Point four, my dean at the university, my super over boss. My dean was on the external advisory board of this journal. He pulled out very fast because he got cold feet. That's another thing. But at the time of publication, and since his name is Anderson, he was actually number one on the lit list of endorsers for this paper. So I think that tells everything. Sometimes people bring up the question about the chain of custody of these dust samples. And I understand that you were you were very, very careful about this and you did a lot of meticulous documenting to make sure that the chain of custody was secure. Can you describe what you did? Well, actually, each individual who was submitting these samples signed the usually documents and in some cases actually also did a video explaining how it was sampled and how it was actually transferred to us. And uh, we have, a total, at that time, I think five good samples. But the fifth individual, this person was not ready actually to come forward with a name and identification in the public domain. So we pulled out all the results from this fifth sample because this individual did not want uh, to uh, publicly certify the chain of custody. 
I think that is uh, hopefully illustrative of the scrutiny that we put into. I, I thought, actually, I admit, I must admit now, I thought this whole <laughs> procedure was ridiculous. In my all my life in science, nobody has accused me of falsifying a sample. I thought it was so far out. So it was some of the other guys who said, no, we have to do this very accurately. I say, come on, man. This isn't this a bit far out? And they said, no, we have to do it. So I, had, I went along with it, and I realized that maybe they were quite, they, it was clever enough, yes. Since you bring up that specific question. You've, you've already mentioned about these iron microspheres and uh, being something like 6% of the dust. Some people have suggested that this could have been as a consequence of welding when the buildings were constructed in the first place. Um, now, it seems to me to be a huge proportion of the dust, 6%. I don't know. I'm not an, not an expert in these things. But um, yeah. do, do you think that is an adequate explanation to say that it could be caused by welding? I think it sounds completely ridiculous. But if, if it must be backed by experience, I mean, then they have to go into another high rise and actually document that there are still this enormous amount of tons left because it must be in case it must be prevalent or dominant in any steel frame high rise, which has been raised. By the same method so it's the matter let them go and document this absolutely good points yes indeed um can i ask you also about the carbon nanotubes that you mentioned in your toronto hearings presentation yeah where have been found in the lung tissue of uh, emergency responders yeah what's the significance of that well you're actually you're hitting the soft, the soft toe here because this is some results which I, i've been so busy the last year that i simply haven't had time to to write it into a publication unfortunately but i must do it very soon uh, now this is just coincidental actually that uh, we have shown that Nano, these nanotubes, which are some very tiny threads of carbon material, which they are being formed when the nanothermite uh, reacts. Kevin Ryan, a colleague of mine from, from Bloomington, Indiana, is making nanothermite in his own backyard. And when he reacted, he sent me a sample of one of his reaction mixtures, and uh, I took a look at it, and actually we found we found these nanotubes. So uh, it's, it's a matter of coincidence, but I can see that the, the discovery that I did actually, that the, the nanotubes are formed in this process, that is new. So when I publish this, there'll be no mention of World Trade Center. The reaction itself is a, is a new and, and very interesting discovery. But the fact is that the that the carbon nanotubes are ending up in the lung tissue of the first responders, and you know they are sick by the thousands. Yes. Breathing this dust, if if you had ever seen it under a microscope, you would say, oh, "Ouch!" I mean, if I just to breathe this stuff, it's so filthy. It's filled with fibers, with glass fibers, with asbestos, with uh, mercury, and Ouch, it looks very, very ugly. This is on an optical microscope. To see the, the carbon nanotube, you have to 
get an electron microscope. They're much, much smaller. But they're ending up in the lung tissue of these poor first responders. Is um, can eventually have been been uh, decisive for their disease. But this is something, this is very recent research. I have actually a paper lying around here which are connecting this to um, some kinds of cancer. Uh, the headline, just to say the headline, carbon nanotubes enhanced metastatic growth of lung carcinoma via upregulation of mildly derived suppressor cells. I mean, I'm not a biologist or a doctor or anything, but what happens what here is that carbon nanotubes plays a role in metastatic growth of lung cancer. And just just to get the connection with your research. Am I right in thinking that these carbon nanotubes are some byproduct of a thermitic reaction? Exactly. So that they are consistent with the hypothesis again of a thermitic destruction. Again, it is a striking coincidence, but it is consistent with the whole model. Yes. 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 we, We cannot say this is caused by that. We can say this is a remarkable coincidence and uh, it is consistent with the overall model, yes. Um, I'm coming back to the question that you touched on earlier when you were saying how important it is to deal with these questions about 9-11. So I'm going to ask you again, why do you think it is so important to question the events? I mean, some people say, well, it's all conspiracy theorizing. Others say it's a long time ago, so why bother about it? So why do you think it's especially important that we can't just move on, we have to deal with this question? Well, first, let me take the opportunity to make a little footnote about the word conspiracy. Because the only conspiracy theory that we are involved in is the one with Osama bin Laden, the 19 hijackers and Al-Qaeda. It was a conspiracy because according to the official version of events, they conspired to to commit a crime, okay? And it is a theory because so far we have seen no single piece of solid forensic evidence that the official conspiracy theory is correct. Which means that we have been brought not only into three wars, or even more probably, and I'm counting Afghanistan, Iraq, and the war against terror, and other people will add to that list what is happening recently now in the Middle East. So um, not only are we brought into war, but the whole global society is going down the drain. We are talking about our civilization, which is in the balance at stake now, no less. Mm. Uh, And everybody, no matter if you look into the economy, onto the environment, environment, the human rights situation, no matter where you turn your eyes, it's not going very well. I would say it's going badly to an extent that that it is the Western civilization which is at stake now. And in my opinion, the most important uh, corroding factor is the lie. The fact that everybody knows more or less that... (laughs) that we have been lied to, but for a different reasons, which we may not have time to come into, it, they have problems to accept 
that they have been lied to. So it is devastating, not only for language, but for always is confidence. No, everybody is scared and everybody is lying and that is accepted. We simply cannot survive that state of, of lies and fears. So, so, and that is the main reason, in my opinion, why not only we are into wars, but that the economy is going so bad. And, and it's all is converging into what happened on September 11, 2001. Of course, there's been plenty of processes leading up to that day, uh, but it is, it is streaming out from afterwards. It would, what has happened since then would not have been possible if it had not happened. So um, that's why 9-11, we cannot, our society, and I'm very, very serious, and I'm talking now on behalf of my grandchildren, we cannot survive and maintain the society we have without confronting the events of September 11th, 2001. Mm. And it is getting late. That's why we spend all our time trying to tell our fellow citizens the truth of 9-11. Yes. I had a, an interview with Kevin Barrett, and uh, he said that he understood 9-11 to be a coup d'etat that a faction within the American establishment essentially, I presume this is what he meant, took over that day in a very strange way, but nevertheless took over, and that we are living with the results of that coup d'etat. Now, do you understand it in that way? Well, I would say coup de monde. I mean, if you want to speak French, it is not a state coup, it's a global coup. And I think that to talk about a specific country, I think is not correct. Every attempt to rationalize this conflict along national, ethnic, or religious fractures is a digression, a derailment. The, the elite, which we can feel behind the, the global events, I'm not pointing any fingers. I do not know who actually instituted 9-11. We do not know. But we can feel that there are somebody in charge which are beyond the national level, beyond national laws, and can apparently do anything without being concerned. So I would rather say that it's a coup against our global community because we are all connected now. Yeah. And, and when we go, we'll go together. It's very difficult to foresee actually what the course of events will be. Mm. But um, if you watch, look at the economy, we are facing very, very serious events. And it may happen anytime or it may take some time because the situation now is meter stable. That is, it, it is bound to accelerate at some point, but you cannot say when. It's getting worse every day. Just the American debt is increasing by $3 billion a day, just to pick one number. And, and the situation in Southern Europe is not stable at all, et cetera, et cetera. Mm, mm. I, know, I know we're digressing here, but... Um... No, not really, because what is needed to solve all this, this problem is a shift of parity so profound 
and unprecedented in history that we cannot imagine. And I believe personally the 9-11 is key and without truth there'll be no peace. So do you feel that the problems that we are encountering with with the economy are just the result of Are they the results of poor decisions, or do you have the sense that this too is somehow engineered? Well, I would say that the political actions which actually led to the financial situation would not have been possible without 9-11. Now we're talking politics, which I I actually very rarely do, but uh, somebody used the opportunities of 9-11 to take some political actions which has led us to the economic situation which we are now. That is, 9-11 is key to the whole thing. And also the key for for restoring our society and our democracy. Now, before we end, for people who are still unfamiliar with this whole business of questioning the events of 9-11, what resources would you personally point people to to find out more because when you you look on the internet there's a great deal of rubbish out there there's good information there's bad information what would you point people to maybe i should make a little advertisement for something called the the consensus project and this is uh, in an, an initiative taken by david ray griffin and elizabeth woodworth and an attorney called uh, william veal in the united states uh, and the, the, the procedure is that there is a panel of experts uh, who evaluate some what we call consensus points. What can we agree upon? What is solid evidence regarding 9-11? And so I am part of the panel. I'm, I'm, I'm a member of the panel myself. And uh, so far we have reached 29 points where we can say with high level of certainty that this is the best evidence available. So I will suggest that people go to www.consensus911.org, I think it is, or just write consensus points 911 on your Google and uh, you'll get to the point. This is the most solid and and well-researched uh, you say things about 9-11 because it's true there's a lot of rubbish out there and that is the way you may say the perpetrators actually work they are spamming the whole field with nonsense and the people who are saying many right things and then they say something wrong so everybody gets confused and we all get tired and we would rather watch uh, the X Factor and television and fall back into apathy. I I do wonder sometimes if some of that is as a consequence of Obama's information czar, um, Cass Sunstein. Ah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. He, no, 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 not not exactly, yeah, or eventually. But this is a broader, actually, the media, the the global media, they fall into place during a day or two, actually, after 9-11. On the day is very interesting because they were actually reporting honestly, also in Denmark, but it took the global media about one and one and a half day to fall in line with the official version. But Cass Sunstein, he's, he's been exercising what you call cognitive infiltration in the 9-11 truth movement. 
and uh, it works actually. He's mm-hmm. uh, he's making a lot of people very tired from infighting. That's another thing. I was but, just wondering if some of the rubbish that we find on YouTube, for example, the outlandish suggestions, I just wonder if some of that is triggered by def- that, that policy. Definitely. Absolutely. So every time, yeah, absolutely. Every time you hear some nonsense, be sure that it is planted. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that's, that's the way it works. And, may, and maybe that kind of repression is... Uh, is uh, you don't get killed, at least from that. But you get very tired, that's true. Mm-hmm. So um, if I should end with something, I would suggest that people to go to the David Ray Griffin's books. is a brilliant American theologian, actually. And uh, then just trust yourself. Don't trust me. Don't trust any other uh, out there. Just trust yourself. See what you see. Go and watch the Twin Towers collapsing, and you'll realize that this is not a consequence of the impact of the two airliners, but it is a controlled demolition. And everybody can count to three, okay? There were two airliners, and there, but there were three skyscrapers, so we should all realize that there's something wrong here. And then go and do your own research. Thank you very much indeed. So we should all question. We should not be afraid to question. That's right. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Dr. Harrod. It's been, it really has been a fascinating conversation. You're welcome and good luck with your show, Julian. Okay. Thank you. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye-bye.